Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we explore breakthrough innovations in mental illness. For new listeners, I'm Tommy Moore. I am a nutritionist, exercise scientist, and very passionate mental health advocate. Mind Medicine Australia is a charity that is committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness by expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. We are supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia, and as host of this podcast, my role is to speak to psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, and leaders in this space from all across the world to help raise awareness of new innovations in mental illness and help shine a light on breakthrough therapies. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who is a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience and also director of the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. This research includes the PTSD Clinical Research Program and the Neurochemistry and Neuroendocrinology Laboratory at the James J. Peters Veterans Affairs Medical Center. Dr. Yehuda is a recognized leader in the field of traumatic stress studies. She has authored more than 450 published papers, chapters and books in the field of traumatic stress and the neurobiology of PTSD. Some of Dr. Yehuda's current interests include psychological and biological predictors of treatment response in PTSD, which also includes genetic and epigenetic studies of PTSD and the intergenerational transmission of trauma and PTSD. So really interesting space um, regarding trauma and really fortunate to be able to get Rachel to come and have a chat to all of us here and hold the space to talk about trauma and what it is, what the diagnosis of PTSD, some of the symptomatology involved with it, and really get a grasp of the current research that is around PTSD So in this conversation, we speak about all of what I've just mentioned, as well as understanding the stress response, including brain regions associated with the stress response, including the amygdala and the hippocampus. So we talk a little bit about memory and how memories are formed and why that's important in relation to PTSD. And of course, at the end of the conversation, we get into a wide discussion around MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and its effectiveness in treating PTSD, what the research is at the moment, where it stands, and what to expect from forthcoming research regarding this space. So I'll leave it at that. Please enjoy the brilliance of Dr. Rachel Yehuda. Rachel, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to dive a little deeper into trauma. I feel like I'm starting to get a grasp to really understand how it happens and what actually makes it cause post-traumatic stress disorder. But you have been in this field for many, many years. I've done some wonderful research in this space. And I want to start with the birth of trauma and perhaps even the definition of trauma, because as far as I have seen, or I've seen through the literature and through other evidence that exposure to traumatic stress is definitely necessary for the development of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. But many trauma-exposed people don't develop PTSD. War veterans, for example, some may not develop the symptomatology of PTSD from seemingly identical physical events or memories. So Let's define trauma. Is it a subjective assessment of life events or how is trauma defined clinically? Trauma has been defined in the psychiatric literature as an event that is potentially life-threatening or can be viewed as something that is subjectively distressing. That's how it's used in the common parlance. But the technical definition of a traumatic event is an event that is potentially life-threatening or life-threatening and that can cause the person experiencing it to have extreme fear, helplessness, or horror. And, of course, psychiatry has gone to great lengths to try to define a traumatic event on the basis of its objective characteristics, but it always comes back to the idea that it's not only an objective component, but also a subjective component. It's not just what happened to you, 
but it's how you interpreted it and how it made you feel. So what's involved in the diagnosis of PTSD? Well, the diagnosis of PTSD involves first and foremost experiencing a trauma, which is this horrific life-threatening event. I like to define a trauma as like a watershed event that kind of divides your life into a before and after. So as the years go on, you begin to realize that this event kind of made you a different person or changed the course and trajectory of your life as a result of having experienced it. And it can be a different event for different people. Uh, For some, it's interpersonal violence uh, or combat, being being, um, in a war as a refugee or being exposed to a severe natural disaster or an accident. So all of these are terribly traumatic events, and most of us will experience at least one such event in our lifetime, Uh, not to mention that one in four of us will experience a severe trauma in childhood, including childhood physical or sexual abuse. So those statistics are staggering. Um, But PTSD will generally only occur in some of the people that have experienced trauma. And depending on the trauma, uh, there are different percentages, but I would say it's safe to say between 25 and 50% of people that are exposed to an extremely traumatic event will develop PTSD, at least initially. For many, the symptoms will go away or some, they will linger. And the symptoms of PTSD basically now fall into four categories. The first category is re-experiencing the event. We used to call these intrusive symptoms. And they consist of things like having the memory of the trauma come to you when you, um, even when you're not thinking about the event or doing something completely different, the memory will pop into your mind. Or you can be in a place where something reminds you of the traumatic event and it comes into your mind. Um, Symptoms like having nightmares or, in extreme cases, flashbacks. But what's really important about these re-experiencing symptoms is that they're really distressing. They either cause you great psychological pain or distress or physiologic distress, which means that, in some cases, having the memory of the event actually puts you in the same kind of fight-or-flight response that you had when you were surviving the original event. You might start to sweat or your heart will beat fast or things like that. So that's the first category of symptoms. And the second category is avoidance symptoms. The trauma survivor makes every attempt to not think about what happened or try to not be in situations um, that remind them of the event or people that might have experience the event with them. So there's this real attempt to try to get the event out of one's mind. That is not that easy to do. Uh, The third group of symptoms are what we call physiologic symptoms, physiological reactivity. And these refer to things like um, startle response or insomnia or inability to concentrate. And they're very physiological, scanning the environment for signs of danger, irritability, anger, difficulty concentrating. And then a fourth category was added um, in the newest version of the diagnosis of PTSD, which reflects um, changes in mood and cognition. And these refer to symptoms of depression or anxiety that people may also have after they've been traumatized. Um, But more than that, it affects changes in your worldview that can occur as a result of being exposed to something horrific. People may start to think that the world is a dangerous place or that they're incompetent to be able to um, deal with the world, or they may lose their faith in humanity, stuff like that. And so these four symptom clusters together comprise the core diagnosis and To have PTSD, you have to have symptoms in each of these categories for at least 30 days. And they have to drastically impair your life or your relationships, 
which isn't very difficult to imagine because if you're preoccupied with an event and distressed and you try to push people away and you're always physiologically aroused and your worldview is different, then that is absolutely going to affect your ability to work or your ability to be in a social context or live in your family. In terms of managing PTSD, this physiological stress response of fear and uncertainty and anxiety makes me think about memories and how memories are formed. It's my understanding that there is a physical memory of the events or sensory experience that took place, but also an emotional memory is attached but is in some way stored separately. Could you explain what the stress response is and how it relates to this emotional memory that I'm alluding to? Well, the general idea, and I'll simplify it a little bit um, to the best of my understanding, is that something may go wrong with the fight-or-flight response. And the fight-or-flight response is something that everybody has when they're confronted with challenge. And the fight-or-flight response is a good thing. We're built in a way that uh, our senses provide information very rapidly to the brain, a brain center called the amygdala, that detects danger. We might smell something or see something or hear something. And this immediately sets off a cascade of responses that are actually designed to help us uh, do the best thing possible in that circumstance, whether it be fight or flee. Um, sometimes we freeze, but the hormones that are released are basically in the category of the sympathetic nervous system. You have a big release of adrenaline. That adrenaline rush can really help you do superhuman things sometimes, like fight something off that is usually bigger or too big for you to handle. But um, there's the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, but also the activation of a system that releases cortisol from the adrenal glands. And most of us are familiar with cortisol being uh, associated with high stress levels. Um, but actually, it turns out that one of the primary functions of cortisol is to help shut down the sympathetic nervous system once you've mounted a response to challenge and once the challenge is no longer active. So I like to think about adrenaline as a stress hormone and cortisol is kind of the anti-stress hormone, which is a hormone that helps you really contain the response so that it doesn't go on and isn't prolonged. And one of the things that we learned early on in people who develop PTSD, in fact, some of the work was even done in Australia by my colleague, Alexander McFarlane in Adelaide, is that in the immediate aftermath of a trauma, People that have lower cortisol levels are more likely to be at risk for developing PTSD later on. So there's something about not really being able to contain the stress response in real time that might be a significant risk factor for why people develop PTSD. Because it's very important at the time of a trauma and in the immediate aftermath of a trauma to try to calm down, to try to calm down your sympathetic nervous system, get your adrenaline levels to go back down. Now, ironically, you asked me about memory. Adrenaline is really important for the formation of a traumatic memory, but you want to have just the right amount of adrenaline to form a precise memory that isn't overdetermined or, or a memory that is filled with too much distress um, or emotion. You want to be able to bring up a memory so that you can remember danger and act better next time around. But what you don't want is a memory that is really accompanied by tremendous arousal and that brings back reminders of the original fight or flight. So what seems to happen in PTSD is that you think about a trauma and it, it's not neutral. Like I have a, this modulated voice, you know, I can tell you about events in my past and it would just be like I'm recounting something that I've gotten over because in fact the memory is not paired with the emotional distress. But in some people there's this pairing of the emotion and the memory that makes the memory really unbearable. And that's what I think is at the um, 
I think that's the hallmark of PTSD, this unbearable um, emotionally laden memory. It's not the memory itself that we want to get rid of. We want our memories, but we want to be able to tolerate our memories also. Absolutely. Just coming back to cortisol, if someone does have lower levels of cortisol following a traumatic event, does that indicate that there are genetic factors involved in the development of trauma? Well, people have been giving that idea a lot of attention lately. It certainly means that something might have happened before this trauma that you're responding to that may set the stage for how you are responding to this trauma. Because every time we experience a traumatic event, it's kind of um, about the sum total of all our reactions until that moment. So it's one of the things that we learned early on is that people with um, a history of childhood adversity who also had low cortisol as a result of this were more at risk for developing PTSD when they experienced an adult trauma and that might be a mechanism. Now, is it your actual genes that are also contributing to this? Well, I don't think that possibility has, has been ruled out. It may very well be that certain variants of stress-related genes might also influence vulnerability. But if you had to decide between whether it's your genetic makeup or the things that happen to you that determine your vulnerability to how you respond to a later event, I would have to choose the events. Yep. And when I say genetics, I'm also referring to epigenetics or how genes are expressed and also changed through experience. There's the idea around intergenerational or transgenerational trauma. And my question is more around whether that is epigenetic or genetic transmission being passed down, say, for example, from a family of Holocaust victims. Is this from the traumatic behaviors being passed down epigenetically? Or what do you believe is the mechanism of transmission of intergenerational trauma? So, so we've been giving that question a great deal of thought also, because one of the things that might also increase vulnerability to PTSD or might actually produce low cortisol levels is having a parent that had post-traumatic stress disorder um, in association with their trauma. And so we have um, studied offspring of Holocaust survivors and learned that they are, on the one hand, more likely to develop PTSD to their own traumatic events and also may have low cortisol levels if they had a parent and particularly a mother with PTSD. And in recent years, we have found that there are epigenetic changes in the adult children of Holocaust survivors, which hints at one of the mechanisms that might be involved in conferring both the risk and the hormonal changes. So epigenetics isn't genetics per se, because we don't believe that an epigenetic mark necessarily depends on what version of the gene you have, although it could. It hasn't been ruled out, as I say. But um, there is definitely something very interesting here uh, to see an epigenetic change on stress-related genes in adult children of Holocaust survivors who themselves don't report experiencing um, PTSD um, in association with their own traumatic events. So that suggests that there is something about the adverse effects of a traumatic experience are suffered by parents that does somehow make its way to the offspring. Um, whether this is through egg or sperm or in utero, or whether this occurs based on early attachment or the behavior or parenting of, of the mother or father, we can't rule it out. I think all of those things are contributors. And so the effects that we see in offspring based on parental uh, trauma and parental PTSD are really multi-determined. But what's really important here is that what happens to our parents may also impact us. Right. So 
Would that suggest that you may not need a traumatic memory as a child to develop PTSD? Or is that more related to if there is a traumatic event, the child is more likely to develop symptoms of PTSD? Um, The child is more likely to get PTSD. I'm talking about the adult child. If they have a mother with PTSD, that's what our research shows. But it is a very good question whether the child or the adult child, I should say, also feels like they experienced a traumatic event. And we've interviewed really hundreds of um, offspring of Holocaust survivors who will say things like that they feel that in some way the Holocaust affected them and that they are survivors of it. And some are able to describe this in more detail than others, but it's really a common feeling that um, they're either because of the way the Holocaust left their parent or because of the extraordinary largeness of the event itself, they somehow feel that the Holocaust affected them too. And in doing biologic stu- in performing biologic studies on Holocaust offspring, I mean, there's a lot there to substantiate the claim because many of the neuroendocrine and molecular findings in Holocaust offspring really do seem to parallel those that have been observed in PTSD. And for many years, um, we have been studying offspring that themselves did not have PTSD, or if they did, we controlled for it in our work, which means that our results were not dependent on their own PTSD status. It was about something else. So that's a pretty interesting thing, I think. Yeah, certainly. And I think as more research develops in this space, we'll probably have a more clear understanding of mechanism. But of course, anytime with science and with research, we do need to understand our limitations. And I guess a lot of this is speculation with with some degree of evidence, of course. And I'm really interested in how trauma is stored in the body. And I think that might be a bit of a tough question to answer. I mean, what comes to mind for me is the hippocampus and its involvement with the physical memory and then that sparking the amygdala being the area involved in the stress response. But to the best of your ability, how is trauma stored in the body? I mean, the real answer is that we don't know. I mean, it doesn't stop people from, you know, having hypotheses, but that's just not something that can be easily studied in people because the brain isn't available for that kind of analysis, especially the living brain. So we can't really know. Uh, The hippocampus is very involved in um, memory, but so are many other parts of the brain. And we don't really know how the brain holds memories. And it's been the topic of much research for decades. Um, And we certainly don't know how the brain holds intergenerational memories, but um, animal studies are beginning to um, learn that at least some of this has to do with epigenetic changes in some genes that can be passed in males through sperm. And in women and in females, uh, mostly research has found. the traumatic memories are passed based on in uterine perturbations. So I think that it's very interesting. Sure. Yeah, it is very interesting. Now let's divert this conversation slightly. We've spoken about what trauma is, what is involved in the diagnosis of PTSD and some of the symptomatology also involved with it. Let's look at the treatment options available for patients because they seem to be limited and somewhat ineffective with only 5% of patients with PTSD being healed with current treatments. And there seems to be a lot of frustration in the field. And we will get to what's incredibly promising in possibly expanding treatment options. But before we get into that, how do you or how does one go about dealing with patients with PTSD? Well, That's a really good question. And I think the frustration in the field is that there isn't one treatment that works for everyone. There's not a one size fits all. So although PTSD is now 
easier to diagnose because many people are aware of it. It's anyone's guess what a patient might benefit from. And so for um, victims of interpersonal violence, uh, particularly in adulthood, the cognitive behavioral therapies have been found to do pretty well. These are treatments like prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy. Um, those treatments, when you transport them to combat veterans, don't work as well. Um, in fact, even people with interpersonal violence don't always respond to these approaches. Not everybody can tolerate um, doing the work of the therapy, which involves really um, narrating your traumatic experience over and over again. The idea is to achieve some sort of a desensitization of your traumatic memory, but not everybody uh, takes to this. Some people do. They've developed treatments um, where they take this basic approach and use virtual reality or other kind of trauma simulations, basically the same idea of trying to expose people to their traumatic memories repeatedly so that they can become desensitized. If it works, that's great. Uh, some people are treated with medications. Um, more often than not, the um, cure is worse than the illness. So people complain about side effects from antidepressants. Um, and again, for the people for whom antidepressants work, that's great. But there are also a lot of people for whom these treatments don't work. There are treatments like EMDR and other kinds of psychotherapies where the person doesn't have to narrate their trauma. A lot of people like those kind of treatments. Um, but for every treatment that I can tell you that exists out there, um, one could expect that there would be a very strong percent of the population and even maybe a majority that would still have PTSD even after they faithfully go through the treatment and are compliant with it. So that's a problem. Um, people have been very focused on trying to figure out treatment matching strategies. Are there ways that we can predict in advance who might do well with what treatment, kind of a personalized medicine approach? But the truth is that we're just lacking a big, robust approach that will uh, take away the problem of PTSD for most of the people that have the treatment. And that's really where we are now, trying to see whether there are such treatments and how they could be developed. So it's a long answer. Um, I, I don't want to give your audience the idea that going to seek treatment would be futile, um, because that's not the case. If you have PTSD, you're much better off going to somebody to talk about it than you are to stay at home. So I want to be the last person that really gives bad advice, like don't bother with any of the current treatments. I think it's more a sense of that it might take a while to find the right approach for your particular PTSD. So you really have to hang in there. And if it doesn't succeed with the first round of treatment, you should still be open to the idea that a different kind of therapy may have a better effect. You mentioned antidepressants to be used as part of the therapy. And would that be to do with the comorbidity of PTSD and depression? So if someone developed PTSD, but then their symptomatology could change, I guess, person to person. And so someone who has more depressed symptoms would have more in the treatment options sway towards depression. Are there any other comorbidities involved with PTSD that might help with treatment options or managing symptoms? Well, my suspicion is that the people that do best with antidepressants probably also have comorbid uh, depression or maybe have an underlying anxiety disorder that has been made worse by the experience of trauma. So we know that people that have depression, even in the absence of trauma or PTSD, if, that, if that's a thing, um, do benefit from antidepressants um, more often than patients with PTSD. Um, a lot of times trauma, the same trauma that gives rise to PTSD may also 
uh, create another illness. And the best example of that is mild traumatic brain injury. Sometimes people are exposed to a blast injury in combat or they hit their head or they're in an accident. Uh, so that in addition to the PTSD, they have also sustained an injury uh, of, of their brain, which is quite separate, but the effects can be very synergistic. So um, again, the reason that there isn't a one-size-fits-all treatment is because people come into trauma based on having such different pre-traumatic lives, and it all kind of converges together and adds up, and people also have different ancestral histories, and they have different environments that they came from and different environments that they return to after the trauma. So whether or not you can get over PTSD symptoms depends on a lot of factors that have to do not only with the here and now, but also the past. So it can sometimes be uh, very challenging to treat someone with PTSD, plus which, you know, people with PTSD are not so easy to live with, or people, or they're afraid of alienating loved ones, um, so they keep a lot of things buried inside themselves. Um, a lot of uh, women who have been exposed to interpersonal violence or rape don't want to confide in their loved ones. They don't want to traumatize them with, with stories of how difficult it was. They try to hide it, or combat veterans don't want to, um, you know, traumatize their spouses with details of what combat was like. So what happens is that the, when you don't confide in your spouse, the spouse knows that there's something that they're not hearing, and it creates a riff, and a lot of marriages also suffer when people have post-traumatic stress disorder. So sometimes people come for treatment. They have PTSD, but that's not why they came to treatment. They came to treatment because something's going wrong in their lives, their marriages are falling apart, or they're having trouble with their children. You know, if a patient comes in and says, help me cope with what's going on in my life, even sometimes the therapist sees it's PTSD, it might not be the right time to address the PTSD. That might be better broached in a few sessions or after a while when the patient really recognizes that perhaps treating the PTSD might be the right thing to do to help with some of these uh, problems. In regards to viable treatment options, there does seem to be incredible promise in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. As an organization, MAPS have been working through this for a number of decades. What can you tell me about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and why that's so promising in the treatment of PTSD? Yeah, I'm very excited about um, MDMA and potentially other psychedelics in the treatment of PTSD and we just started a center at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai that's called the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. Um, that's how excited we are. We would like to devote the majority of our efforts towards really testing um, psychedelics and specifically MDMA in the treatment not only of PTSD but of intergenerational trauma. Um, what what I'm excited about is that I really like the approach. Um, and it's not just a matter of giving somebody a psychedelic. The approach with MDMA is to create a state that is inducive, that is conducive to exploring trauma. Um, the MDMA acts as a facilitator. It puts somebody in a state where they're are more trusting and more open and less fearful and more willing to do things that are very hard to do in traditional um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is explore the trauma without judgment, without their own self-critical judgment. And so I think the outcomes um, have been so good in early trials because this is approach that recognizes that you do have to really change someone's state, possibly with the medication, in order to get really deep in there and fight the resistance of avoidance and the resistance that occurs when people are normally thinking about their trauma and they get so distressed that they just can't go there. 
that's what happens to many people in therapy, especially when it's a therapy that causes conflict or that is kind of ambiguous, right? Um, I think rape is, is a trauma that lends itself pretty well to cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a very clear victim. There's a very clear perpetrator. But sometimes uh, people don't feel that they are just a 100% victim. Um, that sometimes happens in the case of combat. Um, they have some really complicated feelings about um, whether they're a perpetrator in some, some circumstances, even by necessity, but it's, it's, it's less clear-cut sometimes. And I think that when you can be in a transpersonal state and you're not afraid of opening doors um, of material that is very difficult and challenging, then you can look at it and maybe have a change of heart about some of the cognitions that you have obtained since your traumatic experience. Things like, I'm a terrible person because of what happened. You know, maybe in a transpersonal state, you're better able to look at the bigger picture and see that maybe you weren't a terrible person. Maybe there were reasons that things happened. And even if you confront something that is really difficult, you may be able to make space for it and be very compassionate towards yourself, um, which in general, trauma survivors are not very compassionate towards themselves. They're very hard on themselves. Um, and in some funny ways, even though, even when they know that something wasn't their fault, they blame themselves, not only because the trauma happened, but because they couldn't fight it off better. They even sometimes blame themselves for not being able to get over it or get rid of their symptoms. So this idea that um, MDMA, which is called ecstasy in many circles, I mean, the idea that you can develop more of a compassionate stance towards yourself and you're in the presence of uh, trained clinicians that know how to really hold a space and help you uh, see and develop that compassion for yourself can really, um, can really be game-changing. So again, I understand this um, from, the, from the trials that have been conducted and from a lot of anecdotal reports that I've heard. And what I think is really important now is to be able to see what psychedelics look like in the average clinical community setting. Because one of the true things about the clinical trials in the psychedelic world has been that it's been such a novel concept until very recently that most people might have been very reluctant to try um, to try this. It might have seemed very drastic to people, particularly people who had never experienced psychedelics, given that we tend to have been talking about these substances as dangerous for the last 30, 40 years. So I think now as this idea is floating more to the mainstream and that the, the clinical trials are showing that at least these uh, medicines are safe, if not effective, maybe more people will give it a try. And so I'm excited about that possibility um, and also excited to try to understand whether this is a treatment that can be given for anyone or whether this is for people that fail conventional therapies. Um, there's a lot that we can look at. And in particular, I'm a I'm really looking forward to examining MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in the context of intergenerational trauma because many people have reported anecdotally that even without intending to, they confront a parental trauma um, while being in an altered state. And so um, I've heard that from many people, and I think that this would be fantastic not only for an intergenerational trauma like the Holocaust, but for healing racial trauma, um, and all sorts of those kinds of wounds. Because I don't think that um, you need to have PTSD or depression per se to benefit from an exploration of processing trauma. Um, I think that trauma, trauma effects can manifest themselves in so many different ways that, it, that it's really nice even if you uh, don't have 
very severe symptoms to be able to try to feel more improved, you know, the betterment of, of well people kind of situation, or that something is standing in your way. And even though you're functioning pretty well, considering um, there might still be room to process something from your past that has been painful, difficult, or challenging. Yeah, absolutely. And you began to really highlight the importance of context for using these medicines because as you suggested, most people still associate MDMA as a drug of recreation or even from the outside looking in, it may seem that it's used as a common pharmaceutical, you know, and that you take the substance home and dose it regularly. But MDMA is used in a vastly different context to that of a common pharmaceutical medicine in that it's not necessarily treating symptoms, but getting to the root cause of the trauma and being able to see it in a way that doesn't invoke this emotional flooding and overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system. So this could be used across different mental illnesses. So in that way, it may have a transdiagnostic action. Now, I, I would really like to see MDMA be in, indicated not only for PTSD, but for processing trauma. But the most important thing that anyone listening to this should know about uh, doing work with psychedelics is that the important work really begins after the trip. It's not so much what happens while you're in an altered state. It's really what you make of it. The processing that occurs when you're perfectly sober the next day, uh, the next week, the next few months. And so you get a richness of material from being in the altered state that then needs to be really discussed and with a professional. And so I'm a little concerned about this idea that people will say, oh, I have trauma, let me just take the psychedelic, I don't really need the clinician or the professional, um, I'll just talk to like one of my friends. But the kind of processing that that goes on after a person um, is in an altered state really probably does require a professional uh, who knows how to help integrate the material. And so that's really an important part of it, that you're beginning a process that you then have to carry forth. And many people say that they can, those who continue to integrate, let's put it that way, those who consider to... Um, those who continue to really reflect back on this pivotal experience and continue to think and integrate, um, and continue to allow how they were in that moment to influence their perceptions as they go forward, I mean, they can, they can do very well. And in that sense, it's even more promising than um, treatments than other treatments, especially with medications. I mean, once you don't take the medication anymore, those symptoms that the medicine was containing just pop up again. So I think that what's really important is that traumatic symptoms find a way of rearing their ugly head, especially when life isn't a bed of roses. That's when many people feel particularly triggered by the past, when things in the here and now are challenging or stressful. But if you really learn how to make room for negative emotions and not to run away and avoid them and to hold these experiences with a lot of compassion and self-love, then you can bring that into other things that happen to you and really, um, really take the lessons from the experience going forward. At least that's the hope. Uh, there's a lot of science that needs to be done still, a lot more clinical trials. Uh, we have much to do to try to understand how it works and for whom it works. Um, I want to contain my excitement with knowing that even psychedelics probably won't work for everyone, and it's really important to understand you know, for whom it will work best. But we're entering a phase now where I think it's less scary for people who have symptoms to contemplate this as an option. And I think that that's a really positive development. Definitely. Now, the FDA have granted 
Breakthrough Therapy Designation to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of PTSD. Where is the research at and what are some forthcoming trials that are underway at the moment? Well, um, I believe that the results of the first phase three trial are going to be published any day now. Uh, they've been accepted for publication, and um, I happen to know that they're excellent. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how you know the world reacts to this information. Um, so again, there needs to be another phase three trial in order for there to be another positive uh, phase three trial in order for the FDA to approve the treatment. So. I believe that that second uh, phase three trial is underway. And meanwhile, there are other trials that are being done that are not necessarily phase three trials, but I know that, for example, we're going to be doing a study where we're going to be comparing um, the results of three sessions of MDMA with two sessions of MDMA as kind of a scalability study. That's technically going to be a phase two trial, and many others really around the world are thinking about ways to study MDMA also. Um, we're planning to do a group psychotherapy study with MDMA also in the theme of scalability, but also because sometimes having um, this experience within the context of a group uh, could be very empowering uh, to people, especially if they've undergone something similar. So there's lots more to do still. But the FDA approval will make this research a lot easier to do because it's not trivial to do research with scheduled compounds. Uh, that's true all over the world, but it's also particularly true in the U.S., which is where I am. For sure. And I think many skeptics towards psychedelic medicine raise the question that there isn't enough research. But of course, the answer to there isn't enough research is more research and to be able to explore and understand these medicines and treatments requires accessibility and funding, which is difficult due to the scheduling. It's, it's difficult. It's not impossible. Um, I think as the safety data get out there and um, maybe with a little push from a few places here and there, um, government funding will, will open up. Uh, and that will be very helpful. I think a lot of people that are doing research in psychedelics now are either being funded through philanthropy or from the few um, drug companies um, that are trying to advance these efforts. But I think, you know, if you don't lay a good scaffolding uh, down, then the building will crumble. And I don't I really hope that our field doesn't shortchange the necessity of doing the important uh, work that supports studies of efficacy, meaning understanding their mechanism of action, doing the biologic work, and really doing the hard work of understanding the differences between those who do and don't respond. And again, you know, when people have a positive drug, a positive clinical trial, it's so rare because most clinical trials are negative, but they're just so happy that they have a statistically significant result that they often don't worry about, let's say, the 40% or the 50% that didn't get better. And my lab has had a focus since 2006, really, of dividing all trauma survivors uh, according to their response status, being responders or non-responders or partial responders, and really trying to get to understand um, why somebody might respond to treatment X, but not Y, or whether there are just people that are inherently more resilient, or whether it's the treatments that make them so. And I think with psychedelics, too, we don't want to shortchange ourselves by failing to do this really important biologic work. We now have tools in molecular biology and imaging and genetics that, you know, we could have only dreamed about when I was first starting to do research in PTSD. Um, but now that we have these tools, we have to use them to better understand this because what I worry about is that after a few positive trials, we'll say, okay, let's do it. And then we might be disappointed down the road when we don't fully understand 
why not everybody is responding, or that we missed a few things in understanding what else people need um, to be supported with as they begin a journey that is maybe markedly improved by a psychedelic, but isn't quite over yet, and what else do we still have to do? And, of course, should there be boosters? You know, there's a lot of talk now about the COVID vaccine, and maybe we'll need a booster next year. I mean, is that a concept in psychedelics? I don't hear many people talking about it, but that's also something that we have to keep our eye out. You know, is it really true that an experience you have once for a relatively short period of time doesn't need to be revisited again? Or as people, or do people tend to slide down and maybe need a booster or maybe need an experience to process something else or um, go in it a different way? The idea also of treating families that are impacted or marriages that are impacted by trauma and the potential use of psychedelics in that context is another area that is really you know, ripe for, for understanding. So there's a lot to do. There's so much more research that needs to be done. And, you know, I know a lot of people are interested in doing research in this field, and that's good. And don't worry that someone's already doing your study because it's not true. There's, there's a lot to do. And the more people that are involved, the more robust our, our information is going to be. Absolutely. We're allowed to be excited at this prospect, but you are 100% right in that we need to contain this excitement and ensure that we are navigating this research in a cohesive way that will build the scaffolding and building blocks for future research and trials to fine-tune the approach. But Rachel, I won't keep you here too much longer. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and coming onto the podcast and sharing your knowledge with us and to help us raise awareness and educate in this field of research. But is there anything else you'd like to add before we close this one out? No, I'm just delighted to be your guest and uh, really appreciate you reaching out to talk to me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Okay. Thank you. You too. If you have enjoyed this episode and want to support our endeavors, the best thing that you can do is leave a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever podcast platform you're using to help expose this information to people who are seeking it. If you know someone who would enjoy this episode, please share it with them or share it on social media. If you're curious to learn more about psychedelic-assisted therapies or related information, please visit mindmedicineaustralia.org. And finally, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease. Patients should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment.